Welcome to another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I, I think that you all hear me often say that I'm excited about a show, mainly because I have a lot of friends who have excelled and done great things. Uh, today is, I guess, not not too different, but I have somebody who knows me better than, uh, and we won't go down that path at all, uh, <laughs> but, but he's a really, really good friend of mine, somebody I met at literally my first day at Morehouse College, none other than Jeff Bennett. How you doing, my brother? Hey, man, it's great to be here with you. Um, I have been rooting for your success all along these last almost what? Almost decade and a half, man. So yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's 20. No, it's uh, it I met you, yeah, I met you in 2001. Jeff. Oh, man. That's 20 years. Sorry, you're getting old. Brother. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> it's funny, though, because we've seen each other uh, in some interesting states. We'll call it that. And now you get a chance to see each other as fathers and family men and husbands and yeah. you know, trying to navigate this professional journey. So it's pretty cool. You know, I, I, one, I'm glad to finally have you on the hot seat where you're the one <laughs> answering the questions, but I usually start my show off by, um, a lot of listeners want to know how you got to where you are. So we asked yeah. you about the arc of your career. Um, and your career is being a, a journalist, journalist, you've done stints at NPR, New York one, C-SPAN, MSNBC, and recently announced you'll join PBS NewsHour as their chief Washington correspondent. Walk us through your career journey from Morehouse to now. And what advice would you provide the next Jeff Bennett that is graduating from Morehouse or, or, or an HBCU in 2022 that wants to be you? Yeah, well, that's interesting because I think the arc of my career certainly connects directly to my experiences at Morehouse. Nowhere else on earth will you find an institution that has as its chief purpose and sole mission, the educating of young black men. And so for me, always wanting to be a journalist, I mean, my earliest memories when people would say, what do you wanna be when you grow up? I would always say Bryant Gumbel. Um, and so for me going to Morehouse, uh, working on the school paper, I was editor in chief of the paper, um, majoring in English. It was a, a Spelman grad who gave me my first internship at ABC News. And so, you know, I can draw a direct line to the work I'm doing now and to the experiences I was afforded at Morehouse. And so my first job was working at ABC News, World News Tonight with Peter Jennings. I was a production assistant on his show. And for me, you know, having that sort of full circle moment so early in my career, because that was the broadcast I watched every night. I watched Peter Jennings uh, for, you know, most of my formative years, certainly all through college. And that, that was, a, was that the six o'clock? Was that the six o'clock or, or 630? 630 National News. And so it, it was crazy. And, and you know, and, and my first internship was with Carol Simpson, the first African-American woman to, to anchor a, a network uh, news program. And she invested in me in a way that I didn't expect her to. And so it was wild, like having that be my first formative career experience, basically meeting your heroes. And um, from there, I spent a lot of time as a producer. I went to NPR, I was a producer at NPR. But at a certain point, I knew I wanted to report on air. But I didn't know how to do it. I knew that I didn't want to just necessarily go the local news route and basically start all over at a small market and work my way up. And so there was a lot of inertia because I didn't know how to get the job that I wanted, but I knew what I didn't want to do in order to get that job. Uh, and so it wasn't until 2012, 2013, when my wife and I had our first kid. And I thought, well, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. So I flew to Atlanta. I hired a retired CNN photographer. We made a tape. Much like in the music industry, you have to have like a demo reel in, in the news business to get your first job. So we made like a demo reel, brought it back, shopped it all around Washington, D.C. 
And uh, Bill Lord, who was the general manager of WJLA, the ABC station here in DC said, I, I like you, I think you're smart, I like the work that you're doing, but I can't hire you because I can't justify to my bosses why I would pay you the kind of salary that I would have to pay you if you were gonna work here. He's like, but there's a job that you should check out in DC, you'd cover all of Washington for New York one. So I applied for that job and that's the job that I got. And I did that for three years covering the White House, the end of the Obama administration, the Supreme Court, Capitol Hill. And I did it as what's known as a one-man band. So basically, I'd start the day by lugging all of my gear all around Washington, the camera, the lights, the microphone. And if I ever had a lawmaker interview, I would have to set up the interview myself and you know get in front of the camera as if I had a crew and do all these interviews. Um, so I did that for three years. They say it builds character. It also... Uh, allows those news organizations to get content on the cheap. <laughs> so did that for three years. At the end of it, I went back to NPR, not as a producer, but as a reporter. And uh, while I was at NPR, I was doing uh, live hits on MSNBC as an NPR reporter and did that for six, seven months. And I was on the Chris, Math Chris Matthews show, Hardball. And he asked me uh, some out of the box question. And he prefaced it with, you know, this is a crazy question, but I'm going to ask it to you because I think you can answer it. <laughs> but, oh, man, here we go. <laughs> so I, my answer was, you know, as my journalism career flashes before my eyes, and then I gave the answer. I think he asked me whether Trump was going to get impeached before the end of his first term, run again or resign. And I gave some sort of answer. And I got back in the car to go home because, you know, NBC, any cable network, when they book you on a show, they send you a car. So I got back in the car and my phone rings. And it was a call from my former boss who said, you know, we've been tracking your career for the last couple of years. I want you to come work for us. And so that's how I became an NBC News correspondent. So the moral of the story there, I guess, for anybody who wonders, you know, how can you sort of carve out a career like this is one, to be intentional about what you want to do. So all throughout my career, I didn't always know what I wanted to do. I certainly knew what I didn't want to do. And I knew where I didn't want to live. And I knew that I wanted to cover national politics in some form. So that meant that I was going to be in D.C. And so at least sticking to that and, and doing good work and investing in the work and being open to opportunities as they came my way is pretty much how I did it. And so I would tell young journalists, you know, get the experience, any sort of you know, useful experience, paid experience. Don't take any unpaid internships in the journalism business uh, and, and focus on the work. Don't focus on the climbing, focus on the work and the doors will open. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. 
Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viore.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. So one of the reasons I wanted to bring you, I have a couple, a lot of questions I wanted to ask you, but you've been somebody who has been at the forefront of the evolution from traditional news to this blending of entertainment and news. Mm. Um, because you've been at, at what I would describe as traditional outlets, NPR and PBS, but you've also been a contributor on MSNBC. What's the difference for those individuals who are out there? What's the difference between the NPRs and the PBSs of the world and the cable news outlets like MSNBC? Or is there a difference at all in the work that you do? There is a difference based on the time that you are watching cable news. In public media, whether it's PBS or public radio, NPR, whether you're listening at 6 a.m. or 6 p.m., what you're going to get is facts first, news first reporting. That, that, is, that is news as a public service. That, that's why public media exists. If you're watching cable news, certainly with CNN and MSNBC, between the hours of 9 a.m. And, and 4 p.m., you're going to get down the middle, for the most part, reporting. Um, Fox News is a beast unto itself. <laughs> Everybody, I think, knows you know what, what they're in it for. Uh, but as you get later into the night, obviously, that's when you get that perspective reporting. But you know, I I have I am not a perspective host. I am not a, a commentator. I don't focus or or trade in opinions. I am I am a journalist. I'm a reporter, and I'm, I'm focused on facts and and trying to make this confusing world uh, a little bit clearer for folks. And so that for me has always been um, a really easy line to walk uh, because if it's not journalism, I, you know, I'm not doing it. You know, for me, that's interesting because people always are like, as a journalist, you should. And I'm like, I, 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 I'm not a journalist. I get paid for my opinion, which is vastly yeah. different I mean, than, than the work that you all do. Who's the best interview uh, in Washington for you? The person that when you go talk to them, you'll actually get something other than spin and you'll actually get something that's worth reporting on. Now, you don't wow. have to tell me who's bad because you might yeah. need to go back to them one day. But who is the best? Yeah. Ced Cedric Richmond, I think, is 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 a great interview. Uh, former congressman. He knows how D.C. works. There's uh, some Morehouse bias there. Well, yeah, it's clear Morehouse <laughs> bias. Uh, also senior advisor to President Biden. I'd also say President Biden himself is a good interview. And here's why. I've always said, if you want to know what Joe Biden is thinking, ask him and he'll tell you. <laughs> and he's gotten himself into trouble with his press team because yeah, he'll do that. And it's one of the reasons why I think at times his press team doesn't make him as available to us reporters as we'd like. Um, because even during the transition, when he was in Wilmington and he would have reporters come to that theater in, in Wilmington and he would do the Q and A's, you know, if, if, if he would tell you, he would tell you what he thought. And if for some reason he couldn't tell you, he would tell you that as well. Um, I think before he ran for office on the Republican side, Ted Cruz, was a good interview. I remember his staff gave me 10 minutes with him. And that 10 minute hallway interview turned into 35 minutes. Um, politics aside, uh, the, the guy knows policy and he's smart and he knows he, he knows what journalists are, are searching for. Um, now, granted, the 2016 run and everything that has come after it with the he's a totally trying to decertify the election, all that, you know, that pre, is pre 2016, Ted Cruz was a Someone who you recognize was brilliant and you didn't agree with their politics, but you could never doubt the intellect of that individual. Man, I saw him announced for president at Liberty University and he was in their main arena and it was set up in the round and he had on a headset. I call it the Britney Spears headset. Right. <laughs> 
And he spoke with no notes for about a half hour, maybe 45 minutes. And then at the end of it, he went into, you know, and I'm pleased to run for president, da, 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 da. But the beginning of it was the, like the, the most clear articulation of, of conservative politics and sort of, you know, you could call it, I guess he'd call it at the time, principled, you know, Christian politics um, that I'd ever heard from a politician in my life. Certainly a politician using no notes <laughs> and, <laughs> and kept the crowd um, engaged in such a way where it was in the round. So he's having to literally talk to 360, a 360 degree audience. It was phenomenal. I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, no, I, I've um, I've had the opportunity. I've always, t he's he has dropped uh, on my list, but I would always say that the most engaging, smartest, for lack of a better term, politicians I'd ever been around was uh, Bill Clinton one. Yeah. And then my number two was Newt Gingrich. And people would be like, Newt, G yeah. Newt Gingrich yeah. was, or is utterly just brilliant, the wealth of knowledge he possesses. But I'm pretty sure there are a good bit of people like that in D.C. Did you ever have any interaction with Bob Dole? No, I had more interaction with his, his wife, because by the time I was covering politics um, to the point where I would even interact with him, you know, he wasn't really you know, giving interviews and wasn't really public facing. Um, but I had more connection to Elizabeth Dole. Uh, because I covered North Carolina for one of the stations when I was at New York One, the Time Warner stations, um, and given her, you know, she's a former senator and the whole thing, and she was you know, focused on veterans issues. And so I interviewed her a bunch and, you know, <laughs> same, same deal. I mean, she brilliant. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Yeah, for sure. Let's talk about this. The proliferation of misinformation and misinformation being a part of at least the political infrastructure of, of one of the major parties we have here. How do you combat misinformation personally in the work you do? And how do we do a better job of rooting out misinformation uh, systemically when you have platforms like Facebook and networks like Fox that are actively promoting and amplifying misinformation? I think one, because I've thought about this a lot, and I'll just say what, what I do as a journalist, separate from news organizations that I work for, is that I try to use clear language and call a thing a thing. You will <laughs> find, and this was certainly the case uh, in the beginning of the Trump era, when journalists and reporters would go through all of these mental gymnastics to avoid uh, being very clear about what was happening. And so now you've seen, you know, reporters get to the point where they call Trump out for the lies that he's telling about the election that he lost. Um, and, and being very clear about information that we know is out there, being very clear about where it's coming from. Um, if it's coming from the conservative media echo chamber and it's information that is either disinformation or misinformation or information that isn't provided in good faith uh, being very clear about that. But also, um, I think it's also important for you know people who consume news to have a better sense of our sourcing. So it used to we used to say, you know, three three sources tell us X, Y, Z. Now we're, we're, we're more clear about who those sources are. Are they administration officials? Are they senior White House officials? Um, just to be more clear about the, the origins of this information to make it to make it abundantly clear to folks that it's that this is legit as opposed to what you might be hearing elsewhere. Let me ask you a question, just a pure journalism question. I, I don't know if it's called journalistic ethics or, or whatnot, but explain to listeners anonymous sourcing because it gets extremely frustrating. I even lashed out at it a little bit in this in the recent article that my news network, CNN, did about uh, Jasmine yeah. Wright, and, and uh, I can't recall who wrote it with her, did about the vice president. And it was like 13 anonymous sources. 
So right. how do you determine when is too many anonymous sources, how people are able to keep their name off a quote versus Adam? What's the the because I think I was actually wrong in castigating them because I know it's a necessary part of journalism. But what is the the ethics behind using anonymous sources? So the, the ethics behind the anonymous sourcing is that there are people who will say things uh, on background or say things. Let's be more clear about the phrasing. will say things without their name attached. And they'll be more inclined to, to give you uh, a fuller picture of what's happening if their names aren't attached. And so that's the general idea of how it works. Now, a senior White House official generally is somebody who might have Oval Office privileges or somebody who, uh, over the course of their work, has interactions with the president. A White House official is generally somebody who works, let's say, in communications or is a, a lower level uh, than a senior advisor. And so that's kind of how that shows up. What I don't particularly like are these stories that are basically ad hominem attacks, where it's just anonymous sources. And so you really have no idea <laughs> who these people are. You don't, know, you're just, you should, yeah. you don't even know how to respond to them because you don't yes. know who they are, what role you, they are. Yeah, you don't know who they are. You don't know if they have a bone to pick. And so we didn't at NBC, um, we didn't do, I can't even recall a single story like that because it never got through the editorial process. Because the question would always be, you know, what is this person's motivation? Or, you know, is this person as close to the principal, whether it's the president or vice president, as they purport to be? During the Trump administration, that happened to me a lot, where I'd talk to these sources who uh, would try to elevate their own standing. And then you do the reporting and then you find out that what they might be saying is true, but they didn't come across that information uh, firsthand, yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah, so that, uh, that's the kind of, that's the stuff that gets worked out behind the scenes. And every good news organization doesn't just have good reporters, they also have good editors. And so, I mean, this was certainly the case at NPR, uh, whether you were covering the science beat or the White House beat or Congress or whatever, you might have three or four reporters who are known names, but then beyond that, you have two or three editors who folks don't know. And so every story has to go through that filter. And so you know, you're getting kicked back all these questions and line by line, your story's getting picked apart. I don't know what the process is at CNN. I don't know what the process is at the Washington Post where, you know, for that story with the, the vice president, Kamala Harris, you have <laughs> you have this sort of what I would say thin sourcing get through. Uh, but yeah, no, it's certainly it's certainly a, a concern. And I can understand where people who are consuming this information um, write it off because they don't understand how it works. Thank you for giving us a little bit of clarity. Talk about the new job. What exactly does it mean to be the Washington correspondent for PBS NewsHour? And why did you choose PBS NewsHour? Because I'm sure you had other options. Why them? Yeah, well, you know, I've always been big on following opportunity wherever it, from wherever it comes and wherever it leads. And so they approached me uh, this past spring about joining them in an opportunity that didn't work out. Uh, but then this one did. And so this is an expanded uh, reporting and anchoring role that I'm, that I'm excited about for a couple of reasons. One, it's returning to public media. I spent most of my career in public media um, and being chief Washington correspondent. It really means that I get to cover the White House. I get to cover the Supreme Court. I get to cover the Hill. These are all beats that I've had throughout my career. Uh, but now I get to do it in a way that I think will allow me to sort of connect all the different points of intersection and, and find interesting stories, even stories that are sort of like tangentially connected to politics and really delve into it. Um, but I'm also staying on as a contributor at MSNBC and NBC, which for me is also great because I like the metabolism of cable news. Like if something happens at 10 o'clock, like being on the on TV at 10 at one talking about it. 
Um, and it's also for me, just the audience that exists there and the people who I interact with on social media and stuff, it's good to stay connected to them as well. Talk about this. What was it like to cover Trump as closely as you did? And what did you learn about American politics and covering the Trump beat as, as long and as well as you did? It's funny. It's, it's a so let me ask, let me ask a better question. There are two yeah. things. I want what did you learn as a journalist? And then just as a person who's in this participatory democracy, what did you learn about the political process? What I learned about the political process is it's almost a, a version of that Maya Angelou quote, when people show you who they are, believe them. Um, because Donald Trump has not changed. He has not evolved an iota <laughs> from when he first emerged on, on the scene as sort of a public-facing national politician. And so I remember when he was running and then when he got elected, there were all these people who said, well, he might just govern like a moderate New York Republican. And so that was out there for a while. And then I remember around the time of the family separations, because I covered that extensively, uh, there were always people who would try to put a positive spin on what was happening. And I encountered that all the way up to the January 6th, when the, the rioters were in front of the Capitol. And, you know, there were folks within the building who said, well, they'll, they'll, never, they'll never get through the front door. I mean, security is such that they'll never make it through. And the next thing you know, we have a siege <laughs> at the U.S. Capitol. So I think what I learned from that was when, when politicians are, are, are telling you what they believe and what they intend to do, to believe that and to not run it through the prism of the way things have always been to come up with some other explanation for, thing, you know, for how things might go. Um, I also learned a lot about reporting. Generally, yeah. if you're going to report something and it's you know, exclusive to you or it's not publicly known, you have to have two independent verifiable sources who tell you the same thing before you can report it publicly. With the Trump administration, I would sometimes find a third or a fourth source <laughs> for that reason that we were talking about before, where people would not just spin. I mean, you expect administration officials to spin you. But what I didn't expect, at least in the beginning, was having administration officials uh, lie. lie, just straight up lie. And that was the case, certainly during the pandemic. Um, and so, so yeah, so that had been instructive <laughs> for me, certainly. This episode is brought to you by Jiffy Lube. Cars can be a big investment, so it's important to take care of them. I once got a car that I started out with 25,000 miles on. I got it to over 200,000 miles because I took care of it. You know how you take care of a car? You take care of the maintenance, the oil, the brakes, all that stuff. And if you don't, you can have a car just completely fall apart. When your car needs maintenance, head to Jiffy Lube. They provide automotive excellence at speed. Get your oil changed, brakes checked, tons of other multi-care services. It's all done by expertly trained technicians who actually care about taking care of you and your car, Jiffy Lube, car more. To find coupons and start an instant online estimate, visit jiffylube.com. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. 
you can work out in it. You can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. We're not all professional athletes, but we all have health goals. That's why Anytime Fitness gives you access to personalized plans and support from a coach. Plus, you can track your training, nutrition, and recovery progress with the Anytime Fitness app, just like the pros. With 24-7 access to more than 5,000 gyms worldwide, get more from your gym membership. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, restrictions, all apply. See website for details. Talk about this, though. I mean, one of the things, and this is, there are just a couple more questions before I let you go. I know you have to get back out to saving the world, but <laughs> false, false equivalencies. I mean, you have individuals who have, you know, these political philosophies, and then you have individuals who outright lie to you. Have we learned anything as journalists and mass media from the Trump years that in, uh, in telling the truth, we can actually pick a side if one side is clearly lying, and that's okay as long as the side that you're on is the truth. I mean, do you, how, yeah. do you, how do you do that? Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, in much, in much, given that Donald Trump was in many ways a walking and, and talking stress test for small D democratic institutions, <laughs> he was definitely a stress test uh, for journalism. I shouldn't even say in the past tense is. Um, and so what I think we've learned over the last four years is that if we have a bias, and of course we shouldn't be biased, but there should be a bias toward the truth and there should be a bias toward uh, democracy. And, you know, I found myself when saying things on television that might even sound partisan, I will often use the phrase, you know, this isn't a partisan statement. This is a statement of fact. Just to disabuse people of this notion that, oh, this guy's editorializing. Like, no, maybe in the old days it might have sounded like that. But now <laughs> I have to, be, have to be very clear uh, about what the truth is. Um, and I remember it was I think it was after the first Bob Woodward book. And there was reporting that Trump was told that COVID was fatal in children. Because I remember at the time, the beginning of the pandemic, the president was saying, you know, when kids get it, they bounce back. It's not a big yep. deal. But what we learned from the Bob Woodward book um, was that no, he, he knew that. But he was saying another thing for political reasons. And I was on Chris Hayes's show. And what I said was, you know, for the last few months, we've been talking about all these mixed messages coming from the administration. And I was like, what we learned tonight was that this wasn't mixed messages. This was deliberate deceit. And in the moment I said it, I thought I might have gone too far. And I thought another beat or two about it. And I was like, no, like, th this is legit. This is what we know based on the reporting and based on what we know based on, you know, public facts from the president, but also from this in-depth reporting about what he knew versus what he was actually saying. You know, I have a funny short story. Um, about when that moment was for me. And I actually think I contributed to us not calling a thing a thing. I was in the, I was in our uh, little production bay area, getting my headset about to go on Jake Tapper when uh, Donald Trump was going through this thing about uh, David Duke and his endorsement. And oh, it was yeah. right before the Mississippi primary. And he said, I don't even know who David Duke is. It was like he was playing footsie. <laughs> Right. And I called I called Donald Trump at that time. I said that he was uh, a racist and I got pulled aside by one of my colleagues, not anybody uh, who was a higher up at the network, but another fellow commentator. And they 
said you can't call people racist because you can never get that off you blah 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 so i started yeah. using this really weird phrase that only you learn at morehouse i said he was using racism as political currency yeah and i just wasn't calling a thing a thing and now everybody <laughs> uses the term racist or uh, to to describe some of his actions so i think that we all have to do a better job of that. One of my last questions for you is one of the things that really gets my goat often when I'm reading political coverage is how few journalists actually understand black and brown folks. Mm. Um, even I was reading this morning that only 2% of Hispanic folk in this country use the word Latin X. Like, why yeah. is that even a part of our lexicon? <laughs> if they, don't, if they don't even use it. Yeah. I see this uh, when we're dealing with uh, the intersection of anti-Semitism and white supremacy um, within the base of the Republican Party lashing out January 6th, et cetera. I see it in the coverage of the first female, first black vice president. How much of this is a function of the lack of diversity in the newsroom and how do we fix that? It's a it's a function of a lack of diversity and it's also a function of people who are in the practice of journalism who happen to be black or brown, not in some newsrooms, feeling empowered to speak up. I remember the day the Trayvon Martin case broke. And this is going back years and years and years, obviously. But I first heard about it on Steve Harvey's show. And so I went into my newsroom at the time and I said, there's this story I heard about that we should cover. And I went through the whole story about Trayvon Martin. And then the question was, well, where, where'd you hear about it? And I said, on Steve Harvey's show. And the second I said that, it was like, oh, okay. Well, had it been in the Washington Post, we might have just thought. And it wasn't until the New York Times started covering that story through the frame of the Stand Your Ground law that my news organization at the time got on it. And I went back to my then boss and I said, remember, I told you about this story about two or three weeks ago, and there was no interest because of where you think I heard the story, uh, you know, where, where I told you I heard the story first. Um, and I said, let's not have that happen again. I, I didn't use that phrasing, but I was I was far enough long enough in my career, at least at that place, to have that conversation. And so you, you know, it, it's just it's just it's just one of it's just one of those things where, yeah, I mean, I think it, it shows up time and time again where you get phrases like Latinx, even though you know Latinos and Chicanos and Hispanics aren't using that <laughs> phrase. Um, and you get stories that look at uh like for instance, South Carolina basically saving uh, Joe Biden's presidency, a current presidency, saving his campaign, you get stories that look at that through a bizarre frame when you could just send a black reporter down there to cover it, you know? <laughs> or, uh, or in Virginia, in critical race theory, it became, yeah. it, you know, they, they, uh, they, I was reading a, an article talking about the metrics by which Fox News talked about critical race theory leading up. It was like once every 11 minutes or something like that. I can't remember exactly what it was. And now they have it. It's like critical race theory no longer exists. They it's, just, <laughs> it's just like the caravans, the Central American caravans. You know, it's it, fear. You know, fear is a powerful drug. <laughs> to use. And so it, it's it's the politics of fear. And it, at least at that network that, that with Fox, it's 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 fear as a currency. Right. It, it's, yeah. it's fear. It's fear to drive to drive clicks and to drive viewership. Um, and so. You know, to the degree that that other journalists, other reporters don't catch on to that, I think is 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 curious. Well, look, I absolutely love you, Jeff Bennett. You are, are a brother of mine. I'm grateful for your time today. Uh, thank you for joining the Bukari Sellers podcast. Hey, man, happy to do it and happy to happy to see all of your success, brother. So happy holidays, man. We'll see you soon. <laughs>